Hey everyone, I hope everyone had a fantastic holiday and if you didn't celebrate, I hope that you enjoyed the time off. I didn't cook this year. I typically host a Friendsgiving every single year for all of my sailors who have nowhere to go and friends and family who want to join in and it's a big affair, but this year I decided to just relax, stay home and just enjoy the time off, which I desperately needed. However, a friend of ours invited us over to her house this year and made a non-traditional dinner with pernil, beans, potatoes, some traditional dishes. She did have a turkey and everything was super delicious and we had a great time talking with grown-ups, not just my kids like I do every day. <laughs> so it was a super awesome experience all around. So thank you to her, but that's enough of me. Today's episode does come with a trigger warning as I will be discussing the topic of sexual assault, so this may not be suitable for younger ears or persons triggered by this topic. So without further ado, get ready, get comfortable, and let's dive in. Hello. Okay, so we're just going to get right into it. Sexual assault, molestation, and abuse are unfortunately topics that women are all too familiar with, and I really just wanted to offer a different take on this from the perspective of how it actually is impacted by culture and why, in my opinion, in my experience, why it tends to happen to women of color, women from Black, Indigenous communities, and women of color. To start off, I want to put it into perspective, and particularly I want to address today child sexual abuse. So according to the CDC, one in three girls and one in every 13 boys experience child sexual abuse. That is an insane statistic, and I want to talk about my experience with child sexual abuse and how I've taken that and applied it to my parenting to take precautions to protect my children. And I wanted to make sure that I shared that information with you all so that you are more aware if this is something you never experienced or have any type of history with. That's amazing. However, it doesn't mean that your children never will. So I think it's important to talk about this stuff openly, regardless of your unfamiliarity with it. Before I get started and dive into my story, I wanted to really talk about how the cultural aspect plays into all of this, because it's statistically shown that women of color and from minority communities are the ones that experience sexual assault or sexual abuse as children more often than um than women who are white. And even African-American women are higher risk for experiencing this, even children, than Latino women, Asian women. So there's statistics within statistics. And I just really wanted to talk about those first and then tie it into my own perspective as per usual. So there's many factors that individual service providers and agencies and systems don't think about when they're trying to offer services for women of color who are victimized. I found this great article from the Ohio Alliance to End Sexual Violence, diversity within communities of color. So just as there are differences within white communities, so are there 
there are also differences within communities of color. For example, not all Black women will have the same beliefs and expectations or experiences of their race alone, and how sexual violence is understood by women or people within that same community can differ from person to person. And it may not coincide with how it's defined in the legal system. And I think that's something super important to understand because it's a lot of the reason why a lot of these issues impact minorities, why they impact our communities more often than they do others. And it's because sometimes our cultural beliefs do get in the way of either impeding the reporting of sexual assault or it breeds an environment for sexual assault. And a lot of communities don't like to hear that. But as a Latina, as growing up Mexican, I can tell you that um, women in the Mexican community, little girls in the Mexican community are at high risk for this, depending on the values of the community that they're growing up in. And I'll get into that just through my own experience and sharing that with you all. The cultural response to sexual violence, different cultures, communities, and individuals have different expectations and methods by which they respond to sexual violence. Some cultures view rape of a woman as bringing incredible shame to their family and their community as a whole. And it could be a reason why women don't report a lot of the sexual assault or sexual abuse and why children are the perfect victims for people who are seeking to commit these crimes. Because it's viewed in this manner, when something like this happens to you, you're expected to keep sexual violence private or within the family or within the community. It is influenced by your family's values and their faith. Any survivors of family social could impact the recovery process because there's a lot of victim blaming, there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of support for the perpetrator who's committing these crimes often. And these various forms of community can have a positive and or negative impact on the survivor. So not all community relations are bad. They can be very supportive. But again, if you're very strict and cultural and bound by your community, it's difficult to report sexual assault or abuse out side of it. And that really puts women and children at risk for experiencing sexual assault themselves. Something that I'm familiar with is the legal status. Some immigrant women of color are often targeted for sexual violence based on their legal status and may fear reporting or fear seeking services to be seen or helped. And that's unfortunate, honestly, because when your biggest secret is that you're an undocumented person in this country and something this awful and something of this nature happens to you or happens to your child, it is a different kind of helpless. It's worse, I think, personally, my opinion, than the act itself because you feel like you're bound to this individual and what they did to you, and you have no recourse, no way to defend yourself, no way to report them, because your fear is bigger than anything else. Your fear of deportation is bigger than anything else. Distrust of systems, a lot of communities of color or women who belong to Black Indigenous communities or Brown Indigenous communities 
we don't tend to have a lot of trust in the legal system. We definitely don't tend to have a lot of trust in law enforcement. And so what should be seen as a safe place or sanctuary for a victim doesn't necessarily feel that way. And this is why we continue to turn to what we know, to our community, right? We might turn to our family, our friends to help us cope. And depending on their values, their belief systems, their own community guidelines, you may or may not get the help or the justice that you deserve as a victim. What else? Resilience. And this one was interesting when I saw the word resilience in there, but it makes perfect sense. As a whole, women of color possess resilience from surviving a ton of historical trauma to managing a bunch of racism and sexism in their present day situations. And so advocacy and support services need to acknowledge that women of color thrive despite their harsh realities. And this resilience is carried into um, the way they choose to cope. Okay. And a perfect, I would say a perfect example of that is you know, how my mother was a victim of domestic violence. My dad hurt her for years. He beat her. And my mother always got up and made sure that she went to work and she put food on the table and she put a roof over our heads. And a lot of women do this because they know that other people depend on them. And so they have to be resilient and they have to be strong and they have to find ways to work around this without necessarily addressing the issue. It's almost like a coping mechanism that you develop and it's like a hard shell mentally. Now, it doesn't mean that you're invincible. It doesn't mean anything other than you have found a way to thrive despite what has happened to you, despite your trauma. And it's unfortunate, but it is a common thing amongst women of color. And because of that, you may not see the signs that you normally would with someone who has not learned how to thrive in an environment like this. And it sounds a little crazy if you're not from a community like this, if you're not a woman of color, and if you've never had to experience this, but it's like the person that's a really good worker in your job, let's compare it. And then instead of getting rewarded, they just get more and more work and more and more work and they continue to thrive despite how much work they have on their lap because they're such people pleasers that they're like, I want to be perfect. And instead of people realizing that that is a trauma response, probably associated to some sort of issues with their parents, with them as children, the case might be instead of people taking it that way, they think, oh, this person, you can give them and give them and give them and just keep putting a load on them. And they're going to thrive no matter what, because they are resilient. And it almost feels like a punishment. It's the same thing with women of color. People look at us and they automatically assume that you are dealing with things perfectly fine because you're resilient. You're meant to. You have dealt with much worse things. And you're often not treated with the same kindness as white women. 
And this is the same in healthcare, right? Women of color, like particularly Black women, have a higher mortality rate when they're giving birth in hospitals. Well, it's because their pain tolerance is never taken seriously when they say that they're in pain, when they say that something is wrong. People look at them and they're like, oh, you can handle it. Like, you're fine. And they don't take their concerns seriously because they're looked at as almost like tougher, stronger. And it sounds crazy, but I swear to you, it happens to women of color everywhere. So it's important to acknowledge these things before we move forward with our discussion, because I think that they're important to know if you want to be an advocate and someone who wants to stop sexual violence, sexual assault, and child sexual abuse. If you have friends who are survivors or victims of this type of trauma, these things are important to understand so that you can navigate um, essentially your relationship with these individuals. If you've listened to the earlier episodes on the show and you've heard me talk about my own child abuse when I was a kid, the earliest that I remember, the first time that it happened, I was four. And a lot of people think it's crazy that I even remember that far back, but I remember, I remember before that. I have a lot of really early memories and Some people don't even remember like first or second grade, but I don't know if it's the trauma of my childhood, but I remember so much of like probably starting about age three and on. I was four years old and I have a a memory of a single incident. I don't know if it happened more than that time. I don't know if... That was the first time, the last time. This is the only memory that I have of this individual molesting me. I was four years old and he was a friend of my father's and he and my father had been drinking all day long. Now, if you come from a Mexican family, a Latino family, from the ranchos, right? Because I grew up in, I actually was born in Mexico and I grew up in Mexico. Um, They drink, (laughs) they drink a lot. Drinking is like a way of life for men, especially men who, you know, who've adopted machismo as like their, I don't know, means of survival or whatever. They tend to drink. And alcoholism is a huge problem in our community. And I would say that this is probably one of the biggest contributing factors to child sexual abuse within Mexican communities is that there's always alcohol. And I have nothing against drinking or people who drink, but I do think that alcohol is probably one of the most dangerous things to be around, to have your children around, especially little kids, because you can never predict how someone's going to behave when they've been drinking. And in this case, my dad was drinking with a friend, as he often did with many friends. He wasn't the only one at the house. There's probably like seven men, seven grown men drinking at our house. My mom was at work and it was just me and my, at the time, almost two almost three-year-old little brother. And 
I was a baby, but I was the only female in that whole apartment. And my dad's friends, sure enough, one by one started passing out from how drunk they were, including my dad. And that's when his friend took an opportunity to come and molest me. And I remember just completely being paralyzed and not really understanding anything that was happening to me. I didn't even realize that I was molested until I was an adult because that memory never really quite made sense to me when I was a kid. I knew it was bad and I know that I felt dirty and disgusting and shameful, but I also knew that my father was not a person that I could tell because it would require him taking responsibility for having put me in that position and putting me in that environment and having these people around me and not keeping me safe. And I could never get that from him. He would never admit to it. I would probably get my ass beat or something <laughs> just because he's just not that, that kind of dad. He's not a, he's not a, he was never a safe space for me. And my mom, it was more out of shame. I never told her because I was ashamed and I was embarrassed. But I also, I think internally, I knew even as a child that it would break her. My mom, as a DV victim, she was went through a lot in her life. And particularly at that time, I don't think that it was something she could have handled emotionally. And of course, it wasn't my choice it wasn't, I wasn't making a grown-up decision because like I said, I didn't even realize what happened, but she wasn't someone that I just told things to, especially just growing up and seeing how resilient and tough she was. I just felt like it was one of those things that just happens, that it's normal. It happens to everybody. Um, so yeah, that friend of my dad's actually to this day is probably still friends with my dad. They don't know anything. It is what it is. But <clears throat> how have I taken that experience and grown from it? Well, as a parent, I know that I would never put my children in that position. I would never be in my house drunk with my children around to where I'm not coherent enough to protect them and keep them safe and keep an eye on them. I would never have people in my house getting sloppily drunk. We drink. I'll have a glass of wine. It's rare, but I do. It's not something that like, I'm like, oh my God, let me go get some, let me go get wasted or something like, <laughs> no, I outgrew that a long time ago. And it's not something that I, whatever, I don't judge people for it, but I am very careful, right? Alcohol has been a huge trigger of mine and I am extremely careful, particularly when my children are involved. So I would say that if you're a parent, and you constantly have people over at your house. You're the house that, that parties. You're the people that host, particularly in Latino communities. Because I swear a three-year-old's birthday party turns into a freaking drinking frenzy. And I cannot fathom that. And people idolize it so much. They're like, yeah, Mexicans know how to party. Yeah, I guarantee you that a lot of your cousins, your primas, your sisters, at one point or another had an experience similar to mine at a party with their parents around. And that is something that our community doesn't like to talk about. They don't like to admit. 
because it's a little shameful, right? To un- to think that something that you love to do and something that your culture is almost praised for, right? Mexicans learn how to party. You don't realize that you're putting your youth at, you know, in so much danger. And like I said, not people are going to disagree with me on this, but I'm speaking from personal experience. This doesn't make it a fact. This is my truth. Okay. So, you know, if that's not how you grew up, that's amazing. I'm so happy for you that you know, your parents never put you in that situation. You had good parents. So don't be that parent. You can always drink. Drinking responsibly is a thing. There's no shame in that. There's no shame in not letting people stay over at your house. If they're going to be staying at your house because you don't want them drinking and driving, make sure that they are in totally separate areas of your house and that your children are behind a locked door. Okay? I know it sounds insane, but it is the safest and most logical thing to do as a parent. You want to keep your children safe. If that means you're going to sleep in your kid's room that night or your kids are going to sleep in your room because you have a bunch of strange drunk men in your house, that's okay. That's not crazy. That is 1000% the most rational thing to do in a situation like that because that situation without you doing that is an unsafe environment that you've created and that you've allowed to put your children in. So that is my parental advice for something like that. That wasn't the only time I was abused. I was abused probably about a year later. It was by a family member. He was an adolescent at the time and I was always left with him. It was always me and my little brother. And as the teenager, he was always the person that was in charge and responsible for keeping an eye on us. At that time, my mom was in the U.S. and we were in, living in Mexico. And he was someone we trusted. He was supposed to take care of us and he was supposed to keep us safe. I don't know if this is my own trauma talking or my way of coping with it, but I actually don't know if he himself knew what he was doing. I feel like I know that he understood that it was wrong and that he shouldn't be doing it, but I don't think he understood what he was doing exactly. And there's a reason why I say this is because we were born in a very small town. A lot of people still speak Nahuatl, right? A lot of our community is indigenous and very religious, very Catholic. I never had a conversation about sex with my own mother. My mother was pregnant at 16, having never had a conversation about sex with her mother. My grandmother most certainly did not talk about sex. You don't talk about your bodies. You don't talk about men. You don't talk about periods. You don't talk about anything about yourself and your body and how your body changes and how your things are normal, not normal. You don't have those conversations. You just don't talk about it. And I can tell you that me growing up as a teenager, this was a huge mystery to me. And the first time I had my period, I freaked the hell out because I'd never had a conversation with my mother. And when I told her, the only thing she told me was to make sure that I always cleaned up after myself because my dad never wanted to see any of that stuff that had grossed him out. That was it. I didn't get a conversation about how to use a pad, forget tampons, like absolutely not. I didn't feel safe asking my mom to go buy them for me when I needed them. I mean, there was so much shame just around my own body alone. And every single person in my community and my family grew up in that manner. And so 
I don't think that the person who did this was someone who was educated enough that felt like they could ask whatever questions they were trying to ask instead of doing these pervasive things to a child. It's weird. He knew it was wrong, obviously, because he was hiding it. He knew he shouldn't have been doing it. He knew that I was a child and he was an adult, essentially. But again, you don't talk about this stuff in a community like that. And when you don't talk openly about sex and people's bodies and your bodies to your children, these things are going to happen. And they're not going to know how to handle these conversations. So how do we avoid it? I can tell you that with my children, I've taken a very hands-on approach to this. My husband, he had a very different childhood than I did. It was very non-traumatizing for him. So that's great. One of us is somewhat normal. (laughs) But I've taken everything that's happened to me and made sure that it's always conscious in the back of my mind because I want to ensure that my children never experience this. We use correct anatomy names for our bodies. We use penis. We use vagina. We use open conversations. When I tell my kids, like, hey, I need you to take a shower, make sure you wash your penis, make sure you wash your testicles, make sure you wash your butt, Um, because they're going to be young men, right? My oldest is 12, my other one is nine, and my baby is four. And when I talk about them to their bodies, I want them to understand that there's no shame. And I do that by constantly reinforcing this language and saying, hey, Make sure you keep your butt and your penis clean. Make sure that you're always keeping that hygiene and make sure if anything is ever wrong, you can talk to me or your dad. I don't ever recall my mom saying, hey, make sure you clean your vagina properly and make sure that you're wiping correctly and make sure that you're preventing the eyes and that you're doing all of this. And so when these things happen, um, you didn't know how to address them and you didn't know that you could talk to your mom about it because you thought that it was something that must only be happening to you because why else would nobody in your family talk about it, right? It makes you feel completely alone. And so I want my kids to be able to tell me, and I have three boys, I don't have any girls. And so it's a little extra barrier there. And so I want to make sure that they know that I don't think their bodies are weird, that they know that even though I'm a girl and there are boys, that we can talk about our bodies, When I'm on my period, I talk about it with them. You know, if I don't feel good on my period, they ask me what's wrong. I say, I'm having cramps, menstrual cramps. You know, when a girl's on her period, it kind of hurts. Sometimes warm water helps. Sometimes just lying down helps. You get stomach aches, whatever the case might be. I need them to understand that as young men, that it's uncomfortable. For some women, it's incredibly painful. I need them to understand. I need them to be able to develop that empathy for women and understand women's bodies, despite the fact that they are not women themselves. So it's important for me to talk about that with them. If they ask me, well, what's a menstrual cramp and what's a period? I tell them. I don't care how young they are. They need to know. They could be grossed out by it. That's perfectly fine. They're little boys. They're going to be grossed out by a lot of things. But they can also be grossed out and understand that it's a natural thing. If they have questions, if they're ever curious about anything, I'm open about it and I talk to them about it. We don't tiptoe around these words. We don't tiptoe around body parts, right? My four-year-old, I was talking to my friend and she, she was telling me something and he barged into the room with his pants around his ankles 
And he's like, mom, I have, I said, why aren't you wearing underwear? Where's your, like, where's all your clothes? I had to take it off. And I said, why? He's like, because I have lint stuck on my penis. And I was like, what? And she heard him and she was dying of laughter. What the hell? And I was like, oh no. I was like, okay. I was like, are you, can you get it off? Like, is it bothering you? And then he's like, oh, I got it. And then he just walked out of the room. And she was like, is that normal? <laughs> and I said, yes, I have three boys and that is perfectly normal. But my older boys, if there's something wrong, if they're like, hey, like, is this normal? I'm like, well, do you want to show your dad? Do you want to talk to me about it? Do you want to look up some stuff on the internet? Let's talk about it. They feel comfortable enough asking. And I, as comfortable as I may seem in front of them and as comfortable as I seem talking about it, it is super uncomfortable. Especially when you're like me, who never had those conversations as a kid, and you're kind of learning how to navigate them as you go. Educate yourselves. Educate yourselves because when something happens to your child, if someone abuses them, if someone touches them inappropriately, if someone violates their personal space, they are not going to have any idea how to approach the subject with you. If they don't like saying the word penis, they're never going to tell you. If they don't like saying the word vagina, they're never going to tell you. If they don't know what those words are, you may misinterpret the conversation. Understand that you are keeping your children safe by having these tough and difficult conversations. And people may find them odd, but they're not. They're bodies. They're body parts. It's like talking about your elbow, your fingers, your legs. Yes, they are our private body parts, but still, you're their parents. You're the ones that are supposed to protect them. You made them. <laughs> if you're the mom, you built that baby from scratch. You take care of it. So that's another thing. And as they're getting older, particularly for me with my boys, right? I don't have any experience as a man. I am a woman. I was a young girl. I was never a young man. And so I understand technically how your body changes and how puberty works and all of these things, but I don't know how it feels from personal experience. I don't know if you get scared as a man. I don't know if you get worried. I don't know if you are confused. Don't know any of these things. So I have to rely on the information that my children give me. Now, I can ask my husband, but my husband is one of those people that doesn't remember anything from their childhood. Like this man, I swear, he has amnesia or something. He doesn't remember anything, I think, before 11. Okay, but I do ask him, I'm like, hey, is this normal? Did you feel like this? Is there something that we need to talk to the boys about? My son just turned 12. Is there something that a conversation you need to have with him? That sort of deal. My son had his puberty talk at school, right? They do it at a certain age. And we asked him if he wanted to be a part of it. He said it was fine. So we signed the waiver and then they taught it to him at school. He couldn't get through it. Halfway through the class, he got so anxious and so like just freaked out by it that he had an anxiety attack and he had to be pulled into the nurse's office. And it was definitely not a reaction I ever anticipated. But later I learned that with puberty, teens can develop severe anxiety. I read about it and I didn't know that. I didn't even know that was a thing, but it made perfect sense because I have severe 
anxiety. <laughs> I have social anxiety. And so it would only make sense that my child has developed some of the same traits that I have. It's unfortunate, but it's being educated about it that I feel gives him an upper hand that I didn't have growing up. And so I talked to a pediatrician about it, and they said that, yes, it's normal for kids to develop anxiety about puberty and things like that, and that as long as we're addressing it with him and allowing him to take his time understanding the ins and outs of it, that it should be something that he can overcome with time, but therapy also helps. This is something I was completely unfamiliar with and not prepared for, but it's important, right? Because if my child was dealing with that alone, say he was wanted to learn more information, say he was ashamed because he couldn't get through the sex talk essentially because it grossed him out so much um, or because it made him anxious or because it made him uncomfortable, whatever the case might be, if he didn't feel comfortable enough to talk to us about it, we wouldn't be able to address it. <clears throat> And therefore, why would I expect them to tell me if someone did something to him? If he can't even fathom a conversation about something that naturally happens to him in his body. And so you have to understand where your child is emotionally and mentally and physically to be able to gauge the environment that they find themselves in and gauge where, what the risk of that environment actually is. Knowing that my son is not ready for those conversations, I know that there are certain things that I'm just not worried about right now. I'm not worried about him talking to girls or I'm not worried about him thinking about his sexuality. I'm not worried about any of those things because right now, he's not ready for that. He wants to continue to be a kid, completely oblivious. <laughs> and he's going to get there when he's well and ready for it. And when he is, I'm going to be right here with all of the information, <laughs> with all of the resources, with all of the everything that he needs so that he can feel safe enough to walk into that conversation, to walk into that part of his life. And if he ever was in a place where he felt like he was being violated physically, mentally, emotionally, that he knew that he could talk to me and his dad. So understanding your children and where they are exactly physically and mentally is highly important. People just want to do the five-minute talk. Hey, yeah, you're going to go through changes. Here's a book. Watch this video. And you think that's it. Your child could have way more complicated questions than that. I, mine does. Mine certainly does. Maybe not all three will, but he's the oldest. So if he does, I will say that at least I'm prepared for the next two. <laughs> and that's important because nobody told me that. And so when I went through puberty, I didn't have anyone to talk to. I didn't have any resources or anything like that. And I knew just from watching the videos at school that they showed us about puberty I knew enough to kind of figure things out on my own but man there was so much shame behind it and when I was older and I was a teenager I was about 15 years old I was molested again by a different family member surprise surprise it was at a party when all the adults got completely drunk, and they all passed out. 
and everybody was literally like just bodies on the floor just laying everywhere because everybody was so drunk they just fell asleep where they were sitting and all the kids were sleeping in one room because if you go to a Mexican party you know that once the kids fall asleep they put them in a room all in the same the babies are on the bed and the older kids just fall asleep on the floor right if you're Mexican you've all been to a party where there's a bunch of kids laying in a room and all the adults are what? Dancing and drinking outside. There's no one in there watching them. Everybody assumes that everybody's family, everybody's friends, everyone knows each other. The kids are in a safe place. What they forget about is that alcohol lowers your inhibitions. And so your kids are, that's probably the least safe environment that you can put them in at that moment. And that's what happened to me. I fell asleep. My parents were outside drinking, my aunts, my uncles, everybody was outside drinking. And I was sleeping in the room with a bunch of my girl and boy cousins and the little babies, our little brothers. My brother was only like four at the time. My little cousin was like three at the time. So all the babies were in there. And I won't even say family member, I would say family acquaintance, whom I've known, by the way, since... I was born. So again, I don't know if that was the first time he molested me. That was a time that I recall. And he walked into the room and I was asleep. But when he walked into the room, I vaguely woke up. I remember seeing him checking to see if anybody was coming. So he was fully alert, even though he was completely drunk. I remember him nudging some of my cousins to see if they were awake or if they were heavily asleep. And he looked for me where I was and he started to molest me and I froze again completely. And I was older. I was 15 years old I could have screamed I could have fought I could have kicked him but I couldn't I just completely froze and one of my cousins one of my male cousins he woke up and as soon as he woke up this man just stood up and he just ran out of room and he was like what the hell what happened because it wasn't like he was raping me or anything it was just it just looked like he was laying there next to me. And I just pretended like I didn't know what he was talking about. Like I was asleep the whole time. And he got up and he went to check the hallway to make sure that everybody was okay. Or if he imagined it, if he dreamt that someone was in the room, he asked me if I was okay. And even though I told him, yes, I have this deep feeling like in my gut, just from the way he was looking at me that he knew what happened and he knew that I wasn't okay, but he didn't know how to talk about it. He was my age. He was 15 as well. And so we just pretended like nothing happened. We never talked about it again. We never brought it up. Never asked me about it. Neither did I. I continue to see this member at family functions and he just acts perfectly normal. And he has, he's only, he only has daughters. He has three daughters and he only has granddaughters. He has three granddaughters. 
and he's always posting on Facebook about how much he loves them, all the times he spends with them, how he takes them here. He keeps them on sleepovers when his daughters go partying. They leave his babies with them because they're single moms. And as much as I would like to say that I want to say something, I can't because I know the values that my, my extended family holds dear. And I have been a stranger to my family since I joined the military 14 and a half years ago. I haven't seen any of them. Any information or any accusations that I bring forth now, they would not be taken seriously. I know it. They would be irrelevant. They would be treated as gossip, like I made something up. And I've learned that in order for me to heal from this kind of trauma, I need to stop expecting other people to admit that they did something wrong to me because I can't rely on that to heal myself. I have to just heal myself and move forward. And these are not battles that I'm choosing. Not now. But look at where I was. Look at how old I was. You think that your kids are safe because they're older. And you know that this is not true, particularly for young women. But it can happen to men as well. And even though I have boys... Yes, I'm teaching them personal space. I'm teaching them to respect the word no. I'm teaching them personal boundaries. I'm teaching them respect towards women and anyone, right? I'm teaching them all of these things, but also I need them to understand their own boundaries. I need them to respect their own space and to feel confident enough to say that their body is their own and no one is allowed to touch it or see it without their permission. Okay, when it's time for them to get into a relationship, then the conversation is going to be different. And we're going to talk more intricately about consent and the things that they can do or when they that they can take it away at any point. And those are important topics to discuss with your kids. No one ever talked to me about any of these things. And nobody ever gave me confidence to say anything. And no one ever created a safe space for me. And so if you don't create that for your children, the chances of them being victimized as kids, as teenagers, as adults, is that much higher. But also something that parents don't like to talk about, and this is the same thing, think about it as bullying, right? You talk to your kids about bullying and you tell them what to do with bullies. You tell them, hey, if someone picks on you, you need to tell someone, hey, if someone does this, we forget to teach our kids not to be bullies and so parents are always in such shock and disbelief when they find out that their kid is the bully and they're so enraged but at the same time we forget that side of the conversation we don't talk to them about why bullying is wrong why teasing is wrong we teach them to be kind but we don't teach them what happens when you're unkind to other people and so it's the same thing with these talks. I can talk to my kids about respecting their bodies, their boundaries, their space, about having a open forum where they can just ask us questions without consequence and how I would believe them if they ever told me that anyone abused them. I would believe them 
but we don't talk to them about respecting other people. And this is something that's pretty sensitive for me because I have three boys, right? I have three boys who are eventually going to be young men. And I think if more mothers and fathers took young men aside to talk to them about the impact of doing something like this to another individual, our society would look much different. But I can't change the world and I can't change society. All I can do is impact the people closest to me and those are my children. And I want to make sure that I raise them knowing if something bad happens to them, they can tell me, but also knowing that the consequences of them doing something bad to somebody else. And I would hope that I raise better humans than that. But as parents, we have to be able to take responsibility for our kids' actions when they do something this horrific and not disassociate yourself from it because this is the time to impact this behavior. And you can't control everything, right? You can't control everything your kids do. But you can do your best to take whatever steps necessary to prevent it. So not just your kids from being abused, but from our kids abusing other children. Usually it happens out of a lack of education, unhealthy curiosities, just peer pressure, alcohol, all of these things. We have to just acknowledge that our kids are capable of both good things and bad things. And that's the best way to keep them safe from all matters. So I hope that this wasn't too much rambling. I wanted to really just talk about this because our kids are, they're so innocent and almost like open to harm because of that same innocence that we love in them. I just think that parents who've never experienced this, it's amazing that you didn't and I envy you and The reason why I wanted to talk about it in terms of your communities and your cultural background is because not all communities are like this. Our Mexican families never allow us to go on sleepovers. They're like, no, no, nunca sabe. They're so keen on protecting you from strangers. But most of the time, the people who rape you, abuse you, sexually molest you are not strangers. Like the majority of the time, they're your relatives, your uncles, your cousins, your parents. We are so dead set on maintaining our family ties sometimes in Mexican culture that we will do it at whatever cost. We will look the other way every single time. We'll call our daughters liars. We'll slut shame them. We'll victim blame. We'll make excuses like alcohol, like they were confused, like they thought you were somebody else. Instead of saying, I fucked up, I shouldn't have had all these fucking people over here. They shouldn't have been sleeping in the same roof that my children were in while I was passed out, while I was drunk, while I was asleep in a different room. I put you in this situation. And I think parents need to take some responsibility for this. Um, And yeah, and my community doesn't like talk about this. But look, go on TikTok. Look at all those Mexican parties and there's going to be a couple of videos where they're going to show you, oh yeah, you didn't grow up Mexican unless you were this kid. And you're the kid that's sleeping in two chairs put together in the corner while your parents are partying. 
right? You've seen those videos <laughs> because you're safe. It's family. We know everybody. Not wondering what's actually happening to your baby while they're asleep. Yeah. So, yeah, that's it for today. Until next time, adios.